Hey, this is John Fish in the tank. We have had this episode uh, sitting on my laptop for a while. And I have to be honest, I was kind of hoping that uh, magically Shaggy or I would press a button and fix the sound, but that ain't the case. So uh, after about a half hour, the sound gets a little bit annoying, and I apologize. However, the comedy inside and the stories are well worth it. Our guest is Joe Bolster. He's appeared on The Tonight Show, Letterman, Conan, had an HBO half-hour special, and it's great. So uh, we find out what was Joe's eureka moment, why it's hard to do a sports comedy show, and what it's like to travel with Brian Regan. Enjoy. Hello, my name is John Fish. We are in the tank with Dan Shackey. How are you, sir? I'm wonderful today. Nice to see you. (laughs) Thank you. I know you make fun of me for having a cork board of nice pictures behind you, but it's a nice background for you. For me? Yeah. I sort of, it's a contrast of light and dark, you're saying? (laughs) Pretty much. And today's guest, Joel Bolster. Hey, John, can I just, uh, for a second here, sort of break the illusion that's going on here? Mm -hmm. Dan, folks listening, has been here for a couple hours, so John (laughs) knew how he was doing prior to that question to Dan. That's true, I do. It's not as if you just walk in. Hey, man, you don't even sit here and set and stuff. And I'll break the illusion even more. I know he's doing okay. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked. Exactly. You wouldn't have asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pre-interview. Oh, I had a horrible death in the family. No, because if I know about yeah. it, my, I had instincts for looking for things that were funny. And, but I never uh, had any idea that it was kind of a career. You know, I would see comedians on various talk shows, and I literally thought that they would the five minutes that they did, they made up as they spoke it. That's how naive I was about the process. So it just thought, I just thought these were guys that came out and they would do five funny minutes off the top of their heads, and it never occurred to me that there was you know a career behind it and months of you know honing material. And uh, so it really wasn't until I got out of college. Uh, literally one night I was watching David Brenner on the Tonight Show, and about midway through his set, it, I just had this eureka moment. I instinctively understood how he was doing it. And I thought, I can do that. I know what he's doing. I'm going to be a comedian. Literally in that instant, that's how I decided to be a comic. So you went out, you bought a fur coat. <laughs> I bought a fur coat. I moved to Philadelphia. And, uh, Were you making... a fan of his? Well, you know, at the time I was. As I kind of got more into comedy, I, I found him to be less sophisticated, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, I thought a lot of his sort of observations were kind of um, banal, for want of a better word. Uh, but That's I, a good I, word. Thank you. Um, but I, I, you know, he was prolific, and he had a funny way about him. I think that was a lot of his appeal. He has a funny sort of speaking style. And um, the bit I remember him doing that kind of struck me as, oh, I get this. You know, he had some bit about being on an airplane and how the pilot comes on and tells you what the temperature is outside. And he said, why do we do that? Okay, so you... Go take a walk on the wing, we'll bring a sweater, you know, and I'm like, all right, I see what, you know, he had a nice setup and a good punchline. And so uh, there was something about his style that um, was easy for me to see, you know, the, the, the um, process behind it. And literally, that it was in that moment that, because you know, I had no idea what I was going to do for a living. I thought I had some idea of being a sports journalist. I was interested in sports. I'd written for my college newspaper in the sports section. So that's kind of the vague notion I had for a future. But everything changed in that, literally, that split second. And did you kind of model your beginning sets after his so. style? No, I was more no? influenced by I, by Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of fancied myself as a storyteller with you know, big sound effects. Um, 
And I, I, I think if I had an influence at the beginning, it would sort of be that. I'd try to be, you know, your mother, you know, stuff like that. It really wasn't me. And then eventually, and then I, I also started in Philadelphia, and, and a guy who was preceding me there by a couple of months was Rich Hall. Do you know Rich Hall? Mm -hmm. Who, I don't know if you know his current comedy, but when he started out, he was very much prop comic. And so I experimented with that for a while. I brought out, you know, goofy things and... And that wasn't me ultimately either. So I, you know, I guess every comic goes through that process of finding your voice and a style that most fits you. And to some degree, I think the audience has an instinct about that because they reward you with laughter when you're when they think yeah, that's what, that's who you are. Were you getting laughs though with these other things? I did. I had a my it first just didn't feel genuine. Uh, to you. Well, <laughs> my first bit was about a uh, with a late night TV ad uh, advertised for hostages. This is an appearance where a lot of airplane hijackings and you know various terrorist groups around the country taking hostages. And the premise was, so much that was happening, they were running out of hostages. So this was a commercial, you know, in that huckster voice, you know, speaking a mile a minute. Are, are you bored? Are you lonely? You're looking for work? And I was, and but I was wearing a helmet and I had a plastic <laughs> machine gun and a black vest. And I thought, do I really want to be lugging this around the gig and get out in Vegas? And all right, here's my next bit. I'd have to get dressed for it and then undressed. And so it wasn't something that I thought was really me, as opposed to some guys like a Carrot Top or the Amazing Wig. I don't know if you know that. Come, come with a trunk full of supplies, and that's kind of their thing. And it just and and Rich, I don't. I think ultimately he may have kind of evolved out of that. But he was brilliant at it. He had some great. Didn't did he end up on Saturday Night Live? He was on Saturday Night Live for a year. He did uh, Sniglets. Yeah. Do you remember that book? And he's now he lives in London. And he's kind of an English. Didn't he have like a rock and roll feel to him? Yeah. yeah. No, even like a Bro character. Uh, perhaps. I thought he had a special on Comedy Central. I'll have to look that up. He may have. You know, the oh, he's thinking of a different guy. Oh. That's that Otis Lee Crenshaw. Yeah. yeah. No, his, I think his name is Rich, but something else. Uh, That's okay. not Rich Hall. I don't think. In the early days of Comedy Central, Rich had a show called Onion World. And it was the, the premise of the show. Onion World is literally is actually a trade magazine. Oh, okay. You know these niche, and so this whole show is about exploring that kind of these subcultures of Onion World and you know uh, sanitary napkin world and really weird things like that. Um, but he, he was really good at prop comedy. And the other thing that's effective about a prop is that it's you know, the, the whole cliche of a picture's worth a thousand words. You know, once you bring whatever it is out, everybody in the audience has that image. As opposed to describing something verbally, where a thousand people in the audience, three hundred might have this image, four hundred might have that, two hundred might have this, and they may not have the funny one that you're looking for. So it is that guy. You're right. Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. That's what I was looking up. Thank you. <laughs> Who's the guy who does Johnny Carson? That's what. I was How thinking long of. did that take? Oh, like right. fifteen years. <laughs> you have to like update yeah. your next. Podcast. You have to call him. You have to call. Well, I don't know how well our podcast would have gone 15 years ago. <laughs> right, that's it, right. So we're going to just throw this out the window and help people yeah. grab the tapes. But uh, along those lines of finding your voice, like I heard that, I mean, how well, first of all, just how many years were you in Philly? Uh, just about one. Okay. Uh, I, I started there as, uh, they had an audition night, you know, a place called Grandma Minnie's. And Rich was, Hall was the, the MC one of those nights, I think. And so he told me about New York. But he and I both got promoted from the audition night to the weekend MCs, mm. which is a whole different ballgame. Because Wednesday night, which is the audition night, you'd have kind of a crowd full of college kids. There's a lot of energy and there's a lot of meeting you halfway. They were probably less expensive, so they were... Um, Forgiving. Yeah, and a much more agreeable audience. And then suddenly it was the weekend, Friday night, instead of 150 people, there were 12. 
even and, then. And now you're the MC. You're not. Yeah. You're the opening act as opposed to the sixth audition where the kids have been greased, if you will. Now it's and I had no idea how to be an MC, and I just thought, well, I'll go right into my material. No idea that the audience needed to be warmed up, and that there was a, uh, you know, that a coldness to an or an inertia that has to be overcome for the MC. And so I was completely inexperienced. And I was working with some really great acts. This club was getting, you know, Jay Leno and, and Michael Keaton, who used to do stand-up. And it was a very interesting stand-up. And um, Bruce Baum, um, um, Letterman had been there some months prior to my showing up. So he was getting a lot of good acts from New York and L.A. But comedy, I think, was still in its sort of nascent period and hadn't attracted big crowds yet. So the crowds were kind of small. And I was just dying to death. As the MC, I, I know, and I it always I, fascinates me that so you're saying like even what was this like 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, that a, the clubs never cut on that. Maybe you don't want the person coming off the audition graduation <laughs> to be, to to be, be in the, charge of the in, show, basically. To be the first yeah. comic, you yeah. know, because learn by fire, but you're ruining uh, the first five minutes for right. But then I think the problem is if someone's really experienced, do they want to see? They're always looking to kind of upgrade. Give so. them a little more money, they'll do whatever you want. Maybe. I think right? there's some guys that are really good at that. Yeah. You know, better than that than, than being a yeah. you know, sort of a traditional comic. But the woods aren't full of them. Yeah. So this guy, I think. And I think he had an, a kind of a nice notion of using his club as a farm system. He would look for the best ones audition night and promote them. Right. And I think like a lot of club club owners, he wasn't particularly well versed in the nuances of comedy. So he didn't Or maybe know there's a hope like, oh, you hopefully you went to a show. Saw how to, how do, to it. do it, yeah, yeah, but uh, <laughs> and I but, couldn't figure it out. I thought, wow, well, so funny on Wednesday, well, <laughs> right? You know, and I think that you know, they always say that the first year of law school is the hardest and that weeds out people. I think the same thing happens in comedy because I think you come in as a comic, uh, having made your friends and family laugh because they know you and they there's a daily kind of connection to you, and you're the funny guy, and they're they're, they're meeting you more than halfway. And it's not a monologue. You're around a water cooler, and other people are talking. So that encourages you to get into comedy. And then you get in, and suddenly it's not your friends and family anymore. It's strange faces who paid thirty dollars. No one else is talking but you. You know, and I think that weeds out a lot of people because they don't get laughs, and it's terrifying. Uh, and of course, the goal ultimately is to get back to the point where it's sort of your friends and family. Not that literally, comfortability. But yeah, they've come to see. They know your sensibility yeah. now, and they they know who you are, and now they're like your family and friends used to, meeting you well more than halfway because they kind of know you, who you are, and that's a, so that's the process. But the first year, I think, is tough because it's you know it's it's I think it's a very difficult thing thing to kind of weather that period that everyone goes through where they're not laughing at you anymore, and it's uh you know being on stage it's a very naked feeling and. You know, this clearly was something I said to make you laugh, and you're clearly not. Okay. <laughs> right back to the office. But I also heard that you were, because you're known as super, super clean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we hear that about all the Philly guys. But you're known as super, super clean. Yeah, I didn't start that But way. you had a, a reputation of being dirty when you started. I did. I did. And I, you know, I, the distinction I would make that I, I mean, this could be still certain, but I was never gratuitously dirty. Mm -hmm. It was kind of during the way George Carlin was, you know, like the seven words you can't say in television. Sure, he's saying shit, piss, cunt, fuck, motherfucker, like cocksucker, and tits, but he's making a point about right. it. It's not, he's not using it just to get cheap laughs. And so the material I had was kind of along those lines. I'm not saying it's that level, but I was trying to make sort of points about language and hypocrisy and sexual mores. 
And then I came to New York, and uh, and, and you know, I discovered right away, wow, that always gets laughs. But I came to New York as a comic strip, and I saw Jerry Seinfeld one night, and that really opened my eyes. I mean, I was just blown away by how completely clean he was, getting the same big laugh. And so I, I kind of had the realization that, um, you know, that's a higher level of the art form. It's not easy to generate the same laughter by being completely clean. And to me, it kind of separated the men from the boys a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, that's, that's the direction I'm going to go. So literally, another sort of instantaneous decision, I'm going to, from this point forward, not write anything that I couldn't do on The Tonight Show, you know, that wasn't network friendly. Now, I'm not prudish about it. I, I think Richard Pryor is great, and uh, I'm as dirty as anyone off stage, you know, hanging out. <laughs> but I, just for me, it feels, I've always described, you know, guys that are greasing the punchline with an F-bomb as it's hitting from the ladies' seat. Sure, you got a par, but you were 150 <laughs> yards closer to the hole than I was. I don't play golf, but I got that. <laughs> but anyway, I got that. And I, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to go on as into some sort of, you know, uh, comedy cop. But that's just personally for me. I just find it, you know, it's a, it's, it's harder and more challenging. I think to try to take a topic and, and, you know, make it work um, in a clean way. It's you know? interesting. Like I, I've joked about this with Shaggy before. Because do you know Big J Okerson? I, I've seen him on television. Yeah, he's and not. I, I mean, he's uh, he's dirty, but it's 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 all very true to him. Yeah, it's him. But uh, he's friends with uh, Nate Targazzi. He's super clean. Mm -hmm. And Jay, I, I once saw Jay introduce Nate to stage. Like he said something like, "You know, this next guy, very funny." Reinstilled my faith in clean comedy or something. <laughs> like it, it kind of just made me think, "Oh, Jay, only like dirty comics." Because uh, we would only see seeing funny from that angle, but right, until right. he saw this, he did guy. appreciate the fact yeah, that, could be done that this guy way. let him do it. So well, certainly, I mean, he I mean, wasn't Nate wasn't Seinfeld for Jay. Yeah. Jay's still doing his thing. Right, right. He didn't have any kind of <laughs> yeah. pithy to the point. Yeah. Of, oh, I'll stop doing this yeah. coarse stuff and switch over to something. But like but that goes back to what you were saying. I mean, Jay is always like yeah. very true to himself. Yeah, I mean, which I think was the transformation that Richard Pryor went through. I mean, I don't know if you know much about his history as a comic, but he started out. Very Bill Cosby-like. Bill Cosby at the time was a couple years ahead of him in terms of uh, national prominence, and and he was doing mainstream television. And uh, I think I Spy might have been a show that was already on the air. So Pryor saw that and thought, well, this is the way I can be commercially successful. And if you hear some of his early material, you can definitely not only hear the the influence of Bill Cosby, but certain expressions are, are exactly the same. And then you know, and that's how you could get your exposure. Yeah, you you only get on yeah, and Sullivan and Johnny Carson were it. You, there was no HBO, there was no Comedy Central, where you could say anything you want. Uh, so that was his only way to to make it. And then there's this famous story about him being on stage, and about this at the in Las Vegas at the Aladdin Hotel. He's opening for like the Supremes or something like that in 1970. And he you know, ladies and gentlemen, the Aladdin probably presents the comedy Richard Pryor. Hey, how y'all doing? What the fuck am I doing here? And he walked off stage. Wow. And disappeared for about three years and went to Berkeley. And the prior that everyone knew then began to evolve. You know, and he sort of, you know, he was, he was living in a whorehouse. His mother was a hooker. And so his comedy is very true to his, uh, you know, upbringing and lifestyle. And some of the best stuff ever written and performed. Um, but, you know, for me, that wouldn't be too honest. I grew up in the suburbs in a not very Catholic mm -hmm. big family. And we were there was sort of the white people that he mocks in his act. Hi, good morning. How are you, sir? Yeah, it's very good to see you. It's a very beautiful car you're driving. Yes, I got it at a good deal down at Conover Motors. You ought to check that. They're having a sale only through January 3rd, though. Better get down there quickly. You know, yeah. so, so you're in so New York. So that would be dishonest for me to. Yeah. Anyway. 
So you're in New York. I'm in New York. You had moved to New York when you saw Seinfeld doing that. Uh, no, I was to... commuting from New Jersey. Okay. An hour and a half every night. I did that for about a year. Okay. What was that about year wise? Uh, the late seventies. Late seventies. Seventy nine. And so, when did you actually move to New York, and what was the landscape? Uh, later in that comedy? year, I know, later in that year, I moved, and uh, well, that was just the, the cusp of when it began to explode. You know, which uh, I think a lot of people attribute, or at least I do, to the you know the the aging of the baby boom population was now at a point where they were in their mid to late 20s looking to go out at night. Um, and comics of a similar age were all over the place, and so that's when you saw this huge boom in uh, comedy clubs around the country. And every major city had at least two clubs, so there was a lot of work to take advantage of. And um, you know, so not long after I came to New York, I was out on the road. Right away, so you were yeah. like, what, two, three years into comedy? Less than that. Less than that. And yeah. you were headlining. Featuring? Headlining. Yeah. And I know this always amazes me. How much were you making headlining? Well, I don't, that's a good question. Probably $1,500 a week, man. Yeah. Back then, you know, it's the classic. Same as now. <laughs> yeah. That's what it means. You know, the, you go in these towns, they pay your airfare, and they you pay your a classic comedy condo yeah. where you'd be with two other acts. And, you know, Jerry Seinfeld used to do a story about the comedy condo at the Fort Lauderdale comic strip. So that every corner looked like someone had a peak sexual experience. <laughs> Suits would get used. And there's a story about me, I don't know if you ever heard this, but I, a comic told me that uh, he was in Cleveland once, the comedy condo, and it was late at night, and he, there was a bunch of tapes. You know the story? Uh, I think Cousins, Adam Cousins told me this. Oh, anyway. So don't tell it. I anyway, there's a bunch of tapes, and you know, he, he, they're clearly porno tapes, so he pops one in, he's kind of bleary-eyed, and it's some lesbian, you know, Munchfest, and uh, <laughs> at some crucial point, as these girls are enjoying each other, the camera pans up to the wall, and there's my headshot. Because <laughs> <laughs> they did it at the condo. I, no, I think what happened was that in the '80s when comedy was hot and everybody got into. You know, there were a lot of sleazy club owners yeah. out there that were capturing or capsizing. Uh, you know, um, getting involved in the latest hot thing, which was comedy at that point. So they got in and. Did it for a while and then got bored or went out of business or didn't have any real talent, but they collected a lot of headshots from the few comics or the many comics <laughs> who may have worked there. And I'm sure this guy then got into the porn business. And he thought, what would be funny? I'll take the most, you know, <laughs> benign looking, smiling comic I can think of and put it. And I've had the, the several guys, you know, I don't know the name of it because mm-hmm. a lot of these things have a known mm-hmm. name, so I've never been able to track it down. I have two different comics. Save these Bring it to the stage with that credit. <laughs> <laughs> you may have seen him in. You may have seen him at the comic strip condo in Fort Lauderdale. I think it would be funny. That would be a good practical joke, though, if like in a porn, like if you made a porn and then like right at the thing. Oh, it cuts to it like cuts you're to just, set. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> brought to you by. Um, so, what were the clubs that were? Was the comic strip opener? Yeah, well, the big three were the comic strip, Capture Rising Star, and the Improv. And you kind of were thought to be one of those, you know, he's an improv guy, he's a comic strip guy, but there was certainly people working all three. I used to work the catch because it was close to the comic strip. Mm-hmm. It was on 2nd and, I think, North 1st and 76 and the strips at 2nd and 81st, so it's not, obviously not too hard to walk from one place to the other, whereas improv was the other side of town. Um, but I started the comic strip. Jerry Seinfeld was the MC the night I auditioned. He passed me. And uh, so then I got into the... Uh, you know, the rotation there. And not long after that, the, the clubs really exploded. So, you know, so it was I, those three main clubs. Those are the big three. I yeah. can't really think of at the time any of the, you know, like you have now. 
maybe 15 publicity maybe what do you attribute to the comic strip being the only one that's still there I mean I guess you would say the seller is another one that's been around for a long time and is that the second one the seller is now probably the second oldest yeah because it started in you know the late 80s Rick uh, Bill Brunfest yeah I met him one night he, he's, it was originally in Dallas Barbecue on the west side by you know where the Dakota is yeah there was a Dallas barbecue, and they still do That's that. still there, yeah, yeah. in the basement, or in its downstairs room. That, was that explains why that carpet is so disgusting. <laughs> it was a comedy club at that one time. That was the original site of the comedy cellar. And then he you know, moved it to its current location, which is you know, a much better place. Yeah. It's a comedy womb. So what do you attribute, though? Do, do, well, the, seen? The, com- the improv was a divorce issue. Uh-huh. Bud Friedman and Zoe, or Zoe Silver, I think was her name. They got divorced, and I don't, I don't know. I think she got it in the divorce, and... Um, was then in charge of, of the East Coast. I don't know how much interest she had in it. It ultimately had another location, I think. It was on 44th, around 9th, and I think it moved downtown for a while. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that. And then it went out of business. And um, Caroline's might be the second oldest. Mm-hmm. Caroline's still, yeah, still yeah. there. That's had a couple different locations. Uh, and Catch, uh, a, lot of, a lot of cocaine involved. Oh, okay. So that's been through in a lot of industries. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, the, the catch, catch still no, catch has a, a name. Yeah, yeah. There's it's like still there's Providence, Providence one, there's one in yeah. Providence, which I've done in a couple of places. But it was legendary for um, uh, being a place where the mafioso would come to enjoy uh. a show, <laughs> and several comics were confronted for their <laughs> as apparently obstreperous behavior as far as the mob is concerned. Joe Piscopo okay. got punched out there one night. Jimmy Brogan, and that's why he turned to weightlifting. <laughs> I guess so. Um, Jimmy Brogan, the crowd work guy, so that makes yeah, sense that yeah. he would upset somebody. But it, I mean, you can't find a more benign guy than Jimmy Brogan. Yet, him asking him, could you hold it down, was enough to warrant a beating. Because, well, he got shoved up against the wall and was told that, uh, you know, if they wanted to talk, they should be allowed to talk. I see their point. Yeah. If they're listening. <laughs> but uh, Clatch, you ever, was Catch around? No, I, when, I, when I started in Boston about uh, 14 years ago, I remember people uh, coming down from Boston to New York to, to audition at the Strip and Catch. So it was still there when I started, but by the time I moved about 10 years ago, it was not there anymore. Because it was started, it was kind of Richard Belzer's club for a while. He was sort of the, the, man, the man there. Uh, it was configured like a cellar. It was mostly a right and left. You know, you're, you see two people in front of you, most people be right and left. And that's another thing that was interesting about that, you know, um, getting into the inside baseball aspect of comedy, the configuration of the room and its effect on the bit. Like the comic strip, the bulk of the crowd was right in front of you. So if you did a physical piece of comedy where the punchline is the position of your hands at the end of the, they could all see it. But it catch. If you did it to the left, the right side of the room didn't hear it. Suddenly, wait a minute, I thought this bit was... <laughs> and you had to kind of make that calculation that uh, allowed... Kind of like baseball park. Yeah. You know? Uh, Fenway's a hitter's park, and City Field is not. So now you got how to adjust to it. Yeah. Someone told me once, if you are uncomfortable, though, somewhere, like yeah. in a new kind of place, yeah. to try to picture yourself at the place you are most at home. Um, but... I, that's what I found in New York, though, like, with all these different kind of rooms, that it does help you so much for all the different situations that you yeah. come across. Yeah, you have to adjust. Yeah. You've got to be ready. Yeah, I think that's it's good training, good experience, because then you're not thrown if you're in some weird gig where, you know, I mean, because, you know, every now and then you're, you're asked to do a, 
corporate thing or a college or a you know a wedding, <laughs> and who knows what sort of um, you know like last year uh, do you know Avi Fleischer? He's a, yeah. He asked me to do some gig for a, a Jewish camp in Israel. Isn't that, he like some genius? Is that? Oh, you mean Ari Fleischer? Oh, is that I'm like Ari is the former press secretary of Bush, whose brother. No, there was. A, was a, no, he definitely didn't know who that was. No. So. <laughs> no, no, there's a guy who plays the piano, and he was in Welcome Back, Cotter for a little bit, and he's the L.A. guy, and he was he he wrote, I think he wrote textbooks and stuff like that. Google that one too. You mean he was a <laughs> cast member in Welcome Back? Cotter? He was like not one of the main ones, but he had enough of a thing to. Maybe, maybe this guy's name is Avi Lieberman. He's a comic uh, in L.A. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they, they, he's he's very yeah, big in obviously. Israel twice a year. Yeah, that's American obviously. Comics. Yeah, I know. And this particular, about a year ago, he uh, there's an organization in uh, Israel that has a camp for victims of terror, their families. And since so this is a fundraiser out in Long Island, he asked me to do this a couple of times. And it was literally in somebody's basement that had a couple steps, so that was the de facto stage, and there's people just sitting in chairs. And I think, to your point, had I never been in a weird situation where this might have thrown me, but you kind of have experience to draw on, you've been there before, you know what to do, so I think you're absolutely correct that, uh, you know, it's good to, I mean, it's not everything's going to be the traditional stage or a TV setup, it's, you know, you get off the beaten path and anything can get thrown in. Oh, you need a microphone? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, it's been said that Chris Rock still says that you are one of the funniest comics he's ever seen. Who were the people, when you first moved to New York, that were blowing you away? Well, Jerry Seinfeld, for sure. I mean, again, going back to my story, he, he was very impressive to me. I had never seen that kind of clean comedy getting laughs like that from a peer. You know, I heard Bill Cosby and Bob Newhart. They were, it was all on record. And um, so I was very much impressed with his, uh, you know, delivery, his great delivery, and his premises were, were very interesting. And Larry Miller I liked a lot. There used to be a tradition at the comic shop on April Fool's Day. Do you know about this? Lucian told me about this one. Performers would switch acts. And so it was fun for the comics only. Everybody would be bewildered <laughs> by this. Because what would happen is, for instance, Larry could do Jerry's act. Because Jerry's act was very precise and specific. and Whereas Larry was more of a storyteller and a lot of it was his persona being injected into the bit. And so... Larry could get laughs with Jerry's material, but Jerry would struggle to get laughs with Larry. So they would, you would hear the comics howling at Jerry's difficulty, mm -hmm. and the audience kind of looking at Jerry and then turning to look back. <laughs> and, well, what, is, what are they finding so funny? Because we're not getting us at all. Um, so those two I liked a lot. They they were. Uh, who who did you do? Did you do this? Like did you do something? I don't think that? I ever did it. No, I don't think the tradition lasted too long. I think the club was too crazy about mm -hmm. it. You know, because it was, it, it really was self-indulgent crowd for the most part. I mean, it was very rare that somebody could get laughs with the other person's act. I mean, Jerry, Larry managed to do it with Jerry, but um, on, the, on the whole, it was not a fun evening for the audience. <laughs> so I don't think that tradition lasts too long. I don't recall ever doing it for, you know, taking anyone else's act on. But uh, I like Paul Reiser. He used to do stand-up, and he had kind of a, he was somebody who really found his voice. Um, and he used to do stuff that He's another guy that uh, I think sometimes was funnier than the audience gave him credit for. He just sees some stuff to this day I remember that was just very funny. Um, uh, about, he had some bit about the, um, you know, when you're on an airplane, uh, he's always on the wrong side of the plane and they point out something interesting. 
Like, I'm on the right side of the plane. If I go on the right side of the plane, we have a large bush. <laughs> on the left side of the plane, the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> <laughs> and he has another bit. I think he did this on one of the talk shows about, uh, you know, imagine somehow you were reanimated in the future, and so you're the representative of the year, you know, 2012. And they start asking questions. Well, how does thermonuclear dynamics? Right? I have no. And so it was a long bit about the struggles for just the common person to explain an entire era of history. Um, so he was somebody who was there at the time. I liked him. Um, Dennis Wolford. It was also very entertaining. Yeah. And somebody who kind of over time you could see him find his voice. He, uh, you know, he would sort of have. Uh, you know, sort of lowbrowish material with highbrow words. It's kind of an interesting contrast. <laughs> um, so those are the guys that were in New York at the time when I first got there that, you know, were people that I liked. And, and that's interesting, though, you said, because uh, most people that have gone through the comic strip have, like, interesting stories of having to audition for Luch and Hole. Yes. Now but he, you mentioned you well, he, auditioned he, for Well, the initial setup was that they had comics running the place, so it was enormous tension for conflict of interest. Which I think ultimately is what happened. You know, there were guys who were auditioning women with caveats, <laughs> and I think that that was bad, a bad system. So sounds, sounds like a great system. Yeah. Well, Cash was notorious for having that being abused because uh, they did the same kind of thing. You know, like they had the, yeah. the MCs where the comics right. were already there, and you know, there was all sorts of uh, offers made that were probably not you know, too fair. Uh, but yeah, so I predated Lucian's taking over as the, you know, the guy. I'm sure you've heard many stories yeah. about his reign and his reactions and his. You never had that awkward conversation. Yeah, Mr. Bolster. I, although I enjoyed the perspicacity, you know, you know, <laughs> I didn't quite see how it would fit into our program. You know, we have an observational comedian, and Mr. Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> However. <laughs> Your material reminded me of the poet Robert Lowell, <laughs> whose use of iambic pentameter was groundbreaking. Um, no, I, I mean, Lucian and I, uh, you know, bonded over sports, and I always found him, you know, an amusing character. Um, and, you know, he became kind of iconic at the club. But, you know, like any, like, like a baseball umpire, anyone in that job is ultimately going to, you know, make enemies and piss somebody off. Uh, you know, there were other, Louis Ferranda did it for a while, catch, and then you had. Uh, I'm trying to remember who did it at the improv, but anybody that was rejected didn't like that person. That, you know, so it's sort of a thankless job. Now, for um, your, I, I, I talked to Barry Weintraub, and he said uh, he saw you at the Grand Round in Yonkers yes. before he started comedy. Yeah. And uh, there was this this bit that stood out to him was about a baseball player. Right field. Right field. Yeah. yeah. It was my theory that. Um, that serial killers have are the kids that have been made to play right field, you know, the last kid picked kind of thing. And um, the bit was something along the lines of, and then even when they're out there at right field, if a left-handed hitter comes up, then they're forced to go over to, to left field. So the, 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 the humility continues. And so the kid, as he's, you know, shuffling across the field, says, I'm like, someday 48 people are going to die for this. <laughs> so, My serial killer hunk. <laughs> Um, do you, what was the first bit that you remember, like, really, like, working for yourself? Well, that hostage bit that I mentioned earlier, that, yeah. that worked. It was, it was, you know, it was well written, and uh, there were good jokes in it. But again, it wasn't really what would become my style, so, so I what jettisoned was, it. If you had to pick one of your bits that best represents 
including like currently like that best represents you. Man, I've ever been asked. Uh, John Lennon, what song? Ah, <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, well, that's that is, I'm, I feel I'm stumped. Gary Seinfeld talking about how every new bit is auditioned to get into his act, and it's true. It is sort of you know you've established a certain level with your with your you know tried and true material, and so anything new kind of has to come up to that level. So when you do a new bit, it's auditioning it in. And so I think that anything that has passed the audition is probably representative of who you are. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything in my act now that I would say, that's not really me, or that's... So I guess anything that I'm using, I could, you know, pick one, I would say, okay, that's fair enough. That's good. I kind of look at it as every bit is auditioning to take over for your old act, where you're like, I don't want to do these anymore. Yeah. What new ones can I replace <laughs> it with? Too. Right, right. Yeah, you want to, uh, you know, thin out the, the herd and get new stuff in there, because... It can get, uh, I mean, but I always think that's one of the hardest challenges. I don't know how you guys feel, but you know, trying out new material, I think, is always difficult, especially when you're, you know, getting paid. You're on the road somewhere, and they're paid whatever they paid to get in. There's sort of an expectation that they're seeing your best stuff. Yet, you can't always have the same material. So the only place to try it out is in that situation. Uh, and I think everyone kind of talks about, you know, bracketing it, the new bit, with something tried and true, so that it's you got some, you know, inertia going, or you got some momentum going in. I mean, if you hit a wall, you got the, the big standard to come into or go out of. But I think the trick is somehow, you know, to deliver it with the same uh, confidence, even though you have no idea. How do you do your new stuff? I mean, you do Shaggy. Uh, I mean, I won't just like open with it, I'll th yeah. but I'll throw in like one or two new ones because I I never deliver it with the same confidence because you're trying to remember how you wrote yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You're trying you're to. You're also trying to it. add to it while you because mm -hmm. it's like it's not set in stone yet. Yes. Well, that's you know that's the thing about comedy is really a, a, a an art form where all the training, all the experimentation is on the job. You know, music, a violinist can practice in his basement with a teacher for years and at some point the teacher says now you're ready to go to Carnegie Hall and sure enough he or she is but you know the mirror doesn't laugh in comedy you know yeah. you, you, all your mistakes are on the job and but it's funny because like even in that even in the documentary comedian Seinfeld said one night he tried his new material first and he was like, I made that rookie mistake of trying my new stuff first. Like, you always forget. Because you're yeah. excited about it. Yeah, you're yeah. excited about it. And it well, also, for me, it's like, oh, well, this has, this new bit I'm doing has nothing to do with anything else I want to do. So I'm doing first. now. So when do I do it? Anything. Yeah. But the other thing is there's certain, certain bits are not opening bits. Yeah. I'm just not opening bits so that it's a mistake to even put them there. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the other aspect of it is that you want the audience a little bit loosened up yeah. if you're tried and true, and then here comes a new bit with this, again, the skid to be greased. But that said, there are some bits that just are middle-of-the-act bits or end-of-the-act bits. You couldn't open with them because they don't feel like a de facto handshake. And your opening bit sort of needs to be a, a how-you-doing or a personal bit or something that's kind of neutral. And not every bit kind of fits that bill. Are you doing now mostly gigs only when you're getting paid, or do you go to those sometimes like, you know, workshop kind of shows? I try to. I mean, yeah. I you know, the strip whenever I can. I so do you find your uh, approach different in those? Yeah. Well, the other thing that's going on for me right now, I've been working a lot the last few years with Brian Regan, and um, 
you know, those are 2,000 or 4,000 people. And, you know, that's where he worked at. Yeah, the theater. That's all he oh, does. That's, that's where he works. He doesn't do any other shows. So he's all, you know, he's, they're paying top dollar and a lot of people and you know, he's got great material and here comes a new bit and he's got to do it and he's pretty good about connecting. So I started to do the same thing and I, you know, I don't have quite the same advantages that he does. They don't really necessarily, they're not there to see me. And they, I mean, they're not know me the way they know him. So it's a little bit more of a proving ground for me. So, but anyway, I tried to about midway through the act fill in couple new things or a new thing and then the works build on it um, and it's obviously a little bit more risky in, in that kind of situation because the expectations I think are higher uh, as opposed to you know 18 people 30 people in the comic strip at 10 o'clock right. on a Tuesday night you feel looser and there's not as big a contrast between a laugh and no laugh right where if 2,000 people give a big hearty laugh and then the next thing you try dozens it's very clear oh no I'm <laughs> Whereas in a club, you can kind of make it feel like, hey, there's nothing I'm talking about. You know, just sort of, hey, I wasn't trying to get a laugh there. Let's move on to this bit that I know works. Uh, and so, but there's a certain point, certainly in Brian's case, where that's all he's doing. Anymore. You have to learn how to create new material in, in, in a high pressure situation. And so I've tried to do it myself a little bit too, because, you know, there's a lot of gigs I work for I'm on stage. And I think it's good. You know, it forces you to really, really write something out in advance and, and try to memorize it. But you're right that when you're out there, here it comes, I know I'm trying to, what did I say, the or uh, you know, <laughs> next thing you know, you're kind of fumbling, and then they, they, like, they sense that right away. But do you record it in case yeah, you I record everything. Yeah. And do you listen? I do. Oh, wow. I and record really uh, just in case. And like then in those situations. Then you might have something new? Or then, you... Well, or if I'm doing something new and I say it differently I and better it. than the way I wrote it. Then you go listen. Yeah. So I've never listened. It's kind of a safety <laughs> I also always find like uh, when I have a new bit in my head it's like five minutes and then it's like four seconds <laughs> on stage and I'm right. like that's it it's over yeah, already that, right? in ten years I'm a new minute you, you give them the folks I'm as surprised as you are <laughs> but it's always I was like ah, did I leave something nope that's no, the whole that's thing it. how's it over already so do you, I mean, when talking to other comics, is this something you have you discussed the new material issues? Yeah. Oh, uh, I think Ross Bennett was it, was it was interesting because he said like in his head, in in all comics head, you have like a hierarchy of the clubs of or the venues of importance to you. Uh huh. So it's like, oh well, I'm not gonna try new stuff at my number one place. I'm not gonna do it because. You wouldn't want them to see you miss. Yeah, yeah. Because they wouldn't have you back. Kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. that theory for Brian Reed would be his favorite cities. <laughs> right. like, I'm not going to try it in this city <laughs> at this Detroit. <laughs> but I feel that too. There's like a there's like a thing where it's like um, there's a there's a there's a contract, and I think it's like all right, these people are. This is a show night. You're getting paid a little bit more. Give them the stuff. Mm -hmm. Don't try a new joke. Or if you right. do, make sure you're getting them right back. Right. And then there's the other nights where it's like. You know, more loosey -goosey. We'll let, yeah, and then the people that are watching you have enough confidence in you so they're right. saying like, "Oh, he's not doing well. He's not a bad comic now. He he's must trying. be trying something." Which new. you know, I've always felt that the showcase clubs in New York. I, I mean, I would love this is my ideal Nirvana kind of situation is that the MC would come out every night at those places and say, "You know, these clubs are comedy gymnasiums. You're going to see something that most people don't get to see, which is the comic creating something and may work and may not." But that's something I've seen change. I feel like it has changed so, so that it's now a business. Where it's now. like a material night every yeah, night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
from the from the comics point of view, those sets are now coveted. Right. So nobody wants to fail. So everyone's trying to do want it. to lose them. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. doing their best. And it's now, it's not that workshoppy vibe. It's at the twenty dollar cover. Too bad. It's two drink minimum. Yeah. It's a it's a night. So because then you get scared into doing the tried and true, yeah. and you don't grow. But that would be great. Yeah. Uh, I think that's and, and I think it's interesting for the audience. Yeah. Be like, all right, here's Picasso. He's got a blank canvas, and we don't know what this will become, but you're getting to see it. Yeah. In process, and you know, it may not work. It may work, but you're there. And please keep in mind that you know something's gonna miss. Yeah. But you're in on something unique. And they see that a lot when Seinfeld pops in and Chris Rock pops in and Louis C.K. And but it's because of their celebrity of their that they'll celebrity. give them that. Like, yeah, I mean, oh, it's actually good to see him do something yeah. not good. But I will say, at, uh, but the, at, at the comic strip, they have late night still, which they've had forever, which it kind of does shift, and those people that do stay are like get into that mode a little bit, get yeah. into that mode, and it's like, well, and then they also have this mindset of like, well, we saw this real show of everybody's best. Tent. Yeah, it's kind now of we can see this workshop show, sort of. and it's bonus. Yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, for instance, next week I'm going to Salt Lake. Uh, Brian is huge in the Mormon community. Because <laughs> we're the whole scene from the hero. <laughs> and we're doing two weeks there. We're doing 10 shows in eight days. 2,700 people. We sold 27,000 people coming to see us. It's Brian Regan Festival. Yeah. And, <laughs> but so there's 10 yeah. shows. Yeah. I, I have to take advantage of that opportunity. That's 10 shows of the month of January where I can't just. You know, so each night I plan to try to, you know, do my little four seconds of Ninja Turtle. Uh, <laughs> you know, and by the end I'll have 18 seconds. But, you know, there's... I how have much time are you doing when you... I do 25 minutes. Okay. But in those situations, I had to learn that, you know, how to do it and, and accept that I have to do it. Because, you know, you can't always... As a, I mean, I guess your ultimate goal is to be constantly working. Uh, and I think there's a certain level where you're constantly working for money. You have to learn how, in those situations, to generate new material. Now, I think one thing that gets in your favor at a certain level is that uh, it's harder for you to miss. The crowds are really with you, and even your worst joke gets something. Um, like, Brian will try new material out, and every now and then something completely misses, and he has a good savor. He goes, you know, that, uh, that, was, a new, that was a new joke. Appreciate your feedback. <laughs> it's a huge laugh, yeah. and he could probably get away with that maybe twice right. in the show. Right. Um, but that's what he has to do, because that's all he's doing anymore big theaters for big money and so that becomes his workshop and you know you sort of have to learn how to generate it under those circumstances yeah. but there's also something like I mean he's doing what an hour or 45 yes, minutes an hour. so as long as the last 10 to 15 minutes are great nobody remembers like yeah but at minute 12 he had a joke that that's didn't work that's a very good point <laughs> it's and the whole experience but we're much more self-conscious about right. that in the audience now you're so right that you know you it's like the classic you know thousand people and the two people aren't laughing at one you focus on <laughs> Or the old joke about the comic does three shows on a Saturday night. You ever heard this joke? And, uh, we'll tell yeah, no, tell it. You know, when the woman comes up to him and he's in the bar later. And says, hey, you look great tonight, man. I want you to come back to my room. And, I'll, you know, and she explains every possible sexual position that they could enjoy. It goes a litany of things that goes on for about ten minutes. And when she's finished, he goes, oh, well, what show did you see? <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's one of Moody's favorites. This comic you're just obsessed with. You know, yeah. the, the, the classic... You know, we focus on the bad show, yeah. or, the, or the audience person's not responsive. Yeah. No, that's a joke, but I've literally done that in my head and not said it out loud because I've heard the joke. If you don't want to be that, yeah. the cliche from the joke, but I've literally thought, 
put Shinobu's this person in because <laughs> I didn't do as well in the second Well, but there are other comics who have that perspective of like, oh, you could have been at any shows. I'm always going. Cool. Like, that, <laughs> that aren't critical at all. Right. Like, well, you know, in a way, that's maybe the good, yeah. a good attitude to have because then, it does, then you're not stopped from trying anything out. You'll yeah. do anything up there. I, I remember Jerry Seinfeld talking about it, seeing Richard Pryor at the comedy store in Los Angeles after he had done one of his tours, filmed it. So now, and in Pryor's mind, he's completely out of material. He's done a national tour. It's culminated in a, in a filming of this. It's now going to be an hour and a half to two hour long movie in theaters. So the expectation from the audience is the next time I see him, he's going to have another one of these. So Jerry said that he, in the wake of that, would he Richard go up at the comedy store in LA and literally he'd come up, man, yeah, how y'all doing? I'm taking a piss out in the parking lot. And that was, he's just throwing it out there. You know, and he, and he would die. And he would have, you know, be on for 30 minutes and maybe two things would work, like a minute and a half. And he'd come back the next night and that, he had that minute and a half and another 28. And then he, you know, the next night he had three minutes. And that's how he did it. And he, but, he, but he had to be good at taking the 27 minutes of death. Yeah, it takes an unbelievable amount of, I think, two things, performance ability mm -hmm. and confidence. And yeah, that I'm going to get it and that they still love me. Well, I think after that kind of tour, like you have to have that confidence. Even though yeah, everybody but, always thinks, like, what if I never write a joke again? There is that point of like, but I wrote this, right? So somehow I'll be I'll able do to it do again, it again. Yeah. But it's it's one thing to talk about it intellectually. It's another emotionally yeah. that you're doing. I mean, you're talking about Richard always, Pryor, yeah. And he's they obviously know it's like you know if if Gaffigan comes in or these people that are coming to see Regan, they know he's funny. Right. He knows he's fine. But Gaffigan will do that. He runs around to all the rooms right. and he tries all his new stuff right. and he doesn't care. Right. And if he gets but a minute out of it, that's good. confidence between yeah, of the course. two. Uh, well, he, you the know, first of all, the audience expectations when they see someone they know come in are high. Oh, everything he's going to say is going to be funny. When it isn't, you, the performer, have to trust that whether they're still going to like me or I don't care if they somehow abandon me as a fan because I need to do this to generate the next hour and a half that I need to go out on tour again. And so you have to resist every impulse to go back to your tried and true stuff in that situation. I think that's you know, a hard level to get to. I would think for those guys, though, the way they do it is you almost go, well, why am I coming out tonight if I'm not going to do this? Like, right. I just went on tour doing this stuff. What, am I going to waste We're, 10 no, minutes I, to yeah, go? No, I completely understand why they're out there. I, I'm saying the, the next level of when it doesn't work, yeah, how do you resisting stick to the it? impulse to, hey, here's my killer bit from the last album, <laughs> it's got to be hard. Yeah. Um, so what was your first TV set? Um, well, I, uh, I did these, they used to have a laugh-off contest. Showtime used to do national laugh-off contests. <laughs> and they did regional competitions around the country. Um, and then the regional winners would go to the national championships. And, uh, they did it for, they did it for four years. Three of it was televised. And, uh, it was a big deal. They had, had New York the year I won at 700 people audition, and they narrowed that field to 60. You had three nights of competition with 20 acts, 20 acts at the improv, 20 at the comic strip, and 20 at catch, and then they rotated. So you had three nights of competition, and the reason they did it that way is because you, with 20 comics on the show, you had to draw a number. So you didn't want to be number one, and you didn't want to be number 20. So they figured by doing over three nights, things would even out, and everyone would have at least one shot and then they narrowed the field from 60 the first narrowed from 700 to 60 the 700 was done by the producers that sat and did auditions so they did the first winnowing and then the next 60 that years, would be first comic standing as opposed <laughs> to last comic standing and they had uh, 
So they had three nights of competition, and then they then they winnowed the field to ten, and then they had a, a night of competition, and then winnowed to the five, and then the five went on a television uh, and had a TV final on Showtime, and so they did that all the regions: Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and then the six or seven regional winners would go to the national championship. Um, the first year I did it, I made the top ten, but not the top five. And then the second year, I made the top five, and then one in New York. And then I won the national championship. So those were both on the showtime. Oh wow. That's sort of my first TV. Were anybody else in the on those shows well, the first, that are still running? Well, yeah, I mean the first uh, the first one was won by uh, a guy named Ron Luke in Triple. The first one was actually won by Marshall Worf. Uh, uh, Robin Williams in San Francisco wasn't televised. And then they a few years went by and they started televising and the first one was won by a guy. I think Marshall Warfield, who was later on mm-hmm. some night coordinator. Yeah. And George Wallace was the New York winner, and he was second. And then the next year, the national winner was a guy named Lon Lucas, who was a ventriloquist act. And the New York representative was a guy, Steve Middleman, who had, who had beaten Eddie Murphy. George, the year George won, it was George, the finals were George, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Larry Miller, Bob Nelson, and a guy named Kelly Rogers. Those were the top five. And George won. And then Marshall won the national championship. And then the next year, with Eddie Murphy, Steve Middleman, and others, Steve won. And this guy, Ron Lucas, was the national champion. He's been trillion. And the next year, they did a, I was a winner from New York, and, and the nationals were in Lake Tahoe. Stevens passed. And so those were all televised. That was the first kind of, and it, they were longer sets, so it wasn't like a you know, simple TV. And then mm-hmm. the, but from that, I got to the Tonight Show. Oh, wow. So did that. Help you uh, the Tonight Show or the Tonight Show? Yeah, uh, yes, it did. And then the Tonight Show kind of helped you with money, and more clubs got to know you. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a stamp of approval kind of of John if you can. Oh, Ed. Over the years, which uh, comedy club has had the hottest weight death? Wow, <laughs> that's Shaggy's question. Man. <laughs> Like to get down to the real important stuff, you know. <laughs> oh boy! Um, you know, and every club's a contender, I guess. Yeah. I was there's some very nice young ladies down at the comedy cell. Yeah. I can't say I've spent too much time. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> a better question for Ray Ellen. <laughs> I mean, you know, my, you probably heard my story about the the pollution, and when I. First came to the comic strip. No, oh, I had I had only been at the comic strip several months, and I got two spots on a Saturday night. It was huge, and so I did the first show. And in the interim, between the shows, a young lady came out of the audience and we got to talking. She's from the Hague, which I thought was exotic. And we wound up back at my friend's apartment. I wasn't living in New York, but he had given the keys to his place. Mm-hmm. So we went back to his place, and one thing led to another. I missed the second show. Which is huge because if you miss a show on the weekend, unlike during the week where comics are hanging around, those shows are kind of finite and nobody expects them to drop out. So it was a huge deal to not be there. And I knew my, I knew, uh, I knew I needed a great excuse. So I come into the club late, and Lucian's there. Uh, Mr. Belser, we couldn't help notice that uh, our stage was not graced with your presence <laughs> during show number two. Uh, I'm sure you have a reasonable explanation. I said, oh, Lucian. Oh, yeah, I met this girl between shows, and I took her back to Peter Bale's apartment, and you know, we, you know, we're getting on, and she had an epileptic seizure. 
without missing a beat. We should go petite or grandma. <laughs> 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 what did you say? I was not prepared for the conversation to go that way. I ain't the one where her tongue couldn't go back in her mouth. I didn't know what you talking about. That's so Lucian. That's you to our grandma. <laughs> it was pretty grand. Uh, he was one of the kind. <laughs> Unique. That's funny. And years later I told him that the whole thing was made up. He remembered? Oh yeah. Yeah. See, these days that would never work because you would have videotaped it on your cell phone to show right. the future. <laughs> That's funny. Um, how about a, a career highlight that we may have not touched on? Well, I guess anytime you do any of those shows, you know, that's you know, the first time the night show was great. Letterman uh, was fun to do. You, know, cause you, you did both? Yeah. And, um, like, I know now, I, think, I, I feel like... They you one or the other? Not necessarily, but I, I think I heard that. Uh, well, was this when Letterman was on NBC? Yes. Yeah. So I don't think oh, it was so such a competition that, thing. That's then. true. Yeah. Right. It's in network. Um, that was nice. These laugh also were nice. They used to have a thing in New York called the Charlie Awards, which was named after Charlie Chaplin. They gave out awards for you know various categories. One year, one best comic in New York. That was kind of fun. They had big, used to have a big celebration or a, a night. It was like a untelevised Academy Awards and they do all the categories best new comic and female and male and best comic and all that. I don't know, it was nice. And, um, you know, just uh, the TV shows over the years, fun to do. We've done some stuff on Comedy Central. You know, we were involved in the early days of Comedy Central. There was a show called Sports Monster. And, uh, you know, the um, first year of, I don't know if you remember those days where there was two channels, with the Comedy Channel and Ha. We were on Comedy Channel, and then the merger occurred. Our show was over to Comedy Central, so we were one of the first shows on Comedy Central back when we were like ten million homes, which ended up being our downfall because the show we were doing was extremely expensive, and the network didn't quite have the funds that it has now. So we we uh, did forty-five episodes. And what? No longer cost-effective. Mm -hmm. The problem with the sports show ones. They've tried it so many times. It's yeah, Tom Herrera had one. Don and Onion did one, and Bill McDonald. Oh yeah. The problem is the audience expects to see topical footage because that's the the template for ESPN Sports Center. The problem with that is, you know, once you get out of the news window, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, Major League Baseball charges you only five thousand dollars for a minute of their coverage. So no, you can't replicate what you're parodying because of the cost. Right. So like we were using stock footage, <laughs> puppets, and anything to kind of cover the fact that we didn't, you know, a sports show with no footage. And I think all those shows have kind of butted up against that, ultimately. Um, and more recently, didn't you write, help write for the Live at Gotham tapings? Like, I, well... When uh, you hear something like that, you're like, How, what does that mean? I didn't really. I was, well, I was sort of a liaison between the comics and the, and the network. A lot of these guys, did you do that show? No. Do you remember? You know, I, I knew it. Yeah, I know it. They were sort of trying to use comics that were, had never been on television. So a lot of them were making their national TV debuts on the show. And in the first year, one of the things they wanted to do was to have the comic set be a mixture of kind of their timeless tried and true material and some topical material from that week. I remember that. They yeah. used to put that on the web that would yes, have the topical right. I remember set. Jesse Joyce did that. Yeah, and that was, he was in the first year. I remember him it Sounds terrifying for it was. your and first TV. I think he was lucky because he had something 
that he could that, that he kind of jerry rigged yeah into topicality I think so yeah because it was based yeah. off a news story or something like steroids yeah. something like that yeah. uh, well that's where they hired me to kind of help the comics who as you say were rightfully terrified that a they're making their national TV debut and b they have to come up with material that week which they may have two opportunities to try out before going on national TV you know so it's one thing to Get your head around it. I'm making my debut, and then oh gosh, I got to write two new minutes of material. I don't know if it's gonna work, but I got to do it in front of a live audience. Which didn't even end up in their TV set. No, it, was it didn't. Like online. It was, online. It was gonna be clipped, yeah. yeah, to put online. So and so then to figure out where do I put it in my set, and so they hired me to kind of help them with that, ah, okay. and um, you know help them shape it, and in some cases suggest topics or, and I did suggest to some of them, you know, this bit that you already have can be repurposed, and so some of them did that, but it was. Way too traumatizing, and I, the next year they abandoned it. So it just sort of, none of us would help me out. Yeah, what are you running? What's your set? Uh, cool. Kind of a consultant. Like a comedy consultant? Yeah, I'm yeah. for <laughs> That's a uh, good thing to have, though, because like, yeah, TV is different, and especially, you don't know. Especially if it's a comic. You know, Was it, did that come up a lot? That's Shaggy just said uh, TV is different. Did, did the comics. Well, you know what? There's two types of TV sets there's TVs and TV sets and studios. Right. This, this was, was a club, club set. Yeah. And it really, it was different in terms of there were certain restrictions on language and there were restrictions on, on uh, corporate stuff. Yeah. Like your Jiffy Lube as a sexual lubricant that you could no longer do. <laughs> you know, and anything was trashing a, like somebody wanted to do a Kobe Bryant rape bit. Who doesn't? My lead off bits. And uh, they, they nixed that. So there, was, there were issues like that that would come up that I would sort of, you know, advise them on. But the first year was the hardest. Uh, in talking with Barry Weintraub, he told me that there is nobody, he's never heard you uh, speak ill of anybody. So we need to know. Of anybody? Who do you hate? I guess he would miss my Hitler lecture. <laughs> who, do who, I hate? who does Joe Bolster hate? <laughs> in terms of what? I mean, of fellow comics or anybody? Oh, anybody? I, I don't like Hitler. <laughs> I'll be on record. Hitler and um, Mahatma Gandhi. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> He seems to have like, is he upset? Asked, <laughs> I don't know if he doesn't trust it, I think. Oh, There's right. got to be somebody in the comedy community that you've well, had I, you know, I, an incident I, with or I, something. I, you know, I don't really like comics that do, I mean, uh, not personally, but I don't like gratuitously dirty comics. Because mm -hmm. I've certainly had my share of having to have someone like that open for me. Mm -hmm. It just makes my job a lot harder. I mean, you know as a headliner that you're dealing with an audience that's already tired, that might be drunk, that's going to get checks while you're on, that's been exposed to 45 minutes of other comedy, and in that situation, you're then expected to come on and at least meet, if not top, what they've seen already, while dealing with fatigue, urinary issues, and checks. It's interesting so because... So, that job is made harder yeah. by someone who's coming on and doing like really cheap, base, you know, horrible material. I don't like comics who do that. So, so when you have a choice, yeah. do you bring your own... I do, like Adam, who you Adam mentioned, presence, he's yeah. come... He's, Approached me and asked if you could work with me. And in fact, next we're going to D Town to open. Oh, cool! Together. So, you know, I when I can, I or I ask the club owner. But I, you know, generally I've been kind of Spartan about it. I just sort of tough it out. Yeah. You know, you learn how to do it, but I don't enjoy it. And I, and I, my tolerance for it has certainly lessened over the years. I just find it's you know, come on. Something it struck a chord with me. Someone I, someone recently told me a story about how they requested to bring somebody, mm -hmm. and the booker said, "I'll book my own shows." You know, very. Like, like screw you. Very all caps. <laughs> like, yeah. I, don't, I don't want yeah. you helping me out. But it's like, well, I agree with you, but also, 
your isn't show, it kind of my show? Yeah, and isn't your show better if yeah. my show's better? Yeah. Brian it's like a power struggle. Regan thing. told me that as he got towards the height of his club popularity, he was starting. He was able to start making some demands. Mm -hmm. And I think the two that he made were No Checks and Please Make the Open Be Clean. Yeah, my buddy Jim Colleton, I don't know if you yes, met him. From, he's in another guy that, too. Yeah, yeah, he opened for him. Awesome. And he says it's a blast and it's great. And, but uh, I, I, I thought I heard, a like, Caroline's was, like, the last club that Brian would he did. keep in his cycle. Since I've been working with me, I think he was maybe contractually obligated uh -oh. to him in his... The year he really began to do almost exclusively theater, yeah. so he fulfilled that obligation. And there was I mean, something that happened, like there well, was some brides. Uh, yeah, I think that no matter like, what happens, that. you can never get away for because you're much on the bachelor party <laughs> in the corner. That that's sort of, you know, what happens in clubs, and there's drinking. Yeah. And um, but since then, he's exclusively done these, these theaters where, you know, he's so wholesome that these crowds frequently bring their kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm talking about ten years. Oh wow! It's not it's not as not unusual at all to see lots of teenagers, and then you'll sometimes see kids as young as 10, yeah. 11 years old who knows material, and and the parents are confident that if they come, there's not they don't explain anything to the kids. He's also one of those guys. I feel like uh, people bring him little doodads oh, they from do. his act. They right? bring so they bring gifts and they bring. It's like uh, it's really sort of like a, a singer in that yeah. regard. I mean, they shout out bits as if they were song titles. And I think that's one of the things he's done, whether consciously or not, that's kind of smart. He's, his routines are song length. Interesting. So that they're more meaty and memorable to the crowd. They literally have titles to them, and, and they're three or four or five minutes long, as opposed to 30 seconds on a subject and on something else. It might be funny, but it may not have the staying power in the audience's mind, as, as, a, as opposed to a chunkier bit. Bill Cosby's that way too. Mm -hmm. A lot of his routines are four or five minute bits yeah. on the same topic, um, and I think that perhaps that maybe you know more impact. So Just what now for Joe Bolster brings you the most joy from stand-up comedy? Well, I, you know, we were talking earlier about new material. That really is it, because you know, as you said, it's you're sort of looking for it to replace the older stuff, and there's you know, it's like a new kid or a baby. It's, the joy of it is, oh, this thing works, and it energizes you, and it and it makes you feel like, well, I, that last bit I wrote wasn't the last bit I'd ever gonna write, because I think sometimes you feel like that, oh, I'm never writing like that again, or is this the best I can do? So, are you rigid in your process, or in terms of uh, structuring your writing time? And um, well, yeah, I'm always writing material down, and I um, what I've learned recently, I think, is that I, for it to work, I has to be very precisely written and I've got to memorize it because as you were saying if you go up and start to fumfer get off track it's a stark contrast to what you've done before and the audience starts to pick up on like, where's this going it seems like he's losing what? and then they focus more on your being in the weeds than whatever it is you might ultimately say so I think the best you know, the closer you can write it to its final incarnation the better obviously there's maybe some tweaking but and then try to deliver it with the same confidence and do you set aside like two hours a day or like... Oh yeah, I definitely set aside time to do write. And I write it, I, I first I would type it out. But to then, to kind of enhance the memorization of it, I write it twice in longhand. And I think that helps, you know, kind of instill in your brain so when you're on stage that somehow comes back. But, you know, sometimes I have these 
you know, delusion or notion of going on at a comic strip in a 15 minute set. I'll do eight new bits. <laughs> you know, and it's, I think that's unrealistic. A, to remember it all, and then B, to have it, you know, because once something starts to go off the tracks, a new bit after that is really, really got two strikes against it. Yeah, I'm on the same page with that. Yeah. So what I try to do is intersperse. Like, here's a new bit, and an old bit, and a new bit. Yeah. I'll do, like, uh, I'll line up if I have, like, three, which is rare, but maybe one or two usually. But if, it, if I do have three, I'll line them up. But I only go to the next oh, one. Oh, right, right. You go as far as... Yeah, exactly. yeah, you're going one lap yeah. at a time. As soon as you fall off the road. All right. Um, but, you know, that, that's, I think that's always the, the goal is to try to, to come up with stuff. And then, and then the other thing is getting it to work the second time. Because sometimes a bit works because you're loose or you do it so spontaneously that the crowd picks up on that. The trick is to, like a golf swing, be able to replicate it in every circumstance under every type of pressure and generate the laugh. So there's always that second time around to spend. Um, yeah, you've mentioned sports a few times, even in this conversation, obviously it's a big impact on your life. And you're a huge run you're a huge runner. I was a runner, yeah. Are there parallels between comedy and running? Well um, I've always thought that it's too bad that show business isn't like running. Because if you watch the hundred meter dash at the Olympics, the guy that wins gets the gold medal. And showbiz is more like, yeah, he was good, but that guy in sixth place with the purple show, I like him. Yeah, he was, <laughs> I think he's the best. An interesting look about him. Yeah, yeah. let's take him. He's different. <laughs> yeah, but he was sixth. No, I know. I know, I know he didn't get any laughs, but, you know, it's, there's a, an objectivity to running that I enjoy and a subjectivity to showbiz that can be kind of mad. You know, I think we all have our, how does that guy, you know, and it's because, well, why is that song number one? And well, we like to end the podcast with this question. Yeah. What joke or bit of someone else's do you wish you had written? Well, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, I think there's bits that I like, but I couldn't have written. I, I like a lot of Richard Pryor's material, but there's no way it's a bit I could have written because I wasn't, you know, born in a whorehouse in Peoria, <laughs> you know? Or, um, and I, so I think you, that the answer to that should be a bit I feel like I could have written. Okay. Or that, you know, and I, I was thinking about that, and I, and I think that um, there's a George Carlin bit about religion, where you really... He's the, uh, Jackie is the... Uh, George Carlin archivist? Yeah. Okay. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, you can correct me. I have the gist of it anyway. Um, and where he talks about, um, you know, the, I think he's specifically talking about Catholicism, but, but could be talking about Christianity in a larger way, but about that, uh, you know, that religion, there's... Ten things. There's a, there's a little old man in the sky, and there's ten things he doesn't want you to do. And if you do any of those things, you'll burn forever in hell. But he loves you. <laughs> now, as a former Catholic, that bit really resonates with me. It's something that you know I feel like it would have been right at home in my act. Um, and I think it's a, a, a great bit. It's not only funny, but it's got a point to it, mm -hmm. which I think all you know is that when you can do that in comedy, that's great. Uh, so that would be my cool. Well, Joe Bolster, thank you very much. Anywhere uh, on the internet you would like people to find you? Well, JoeBolster.com. I have a website with my CDs for sale. Very nice. <laughs> very nice. Thank you.